Hello and welcome to another Red Hacks, that show about being a left-wing journalist in a neoliberal world. I am Joanna Romero, and as always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joanna Romero UK. As you probably know, Red Hacks is hosted by Politics Theory Other, a podcast by Tribune Radio, and you should absolutely follow, like it, share it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poll Theory Other. As has been the case since the lockdown, we are recording Red Hacks through the magic of a phone call. And this time we're keeping a very safe distance, about a thousand miles, as my guest is in London and I am currently in Lisbon escaping the pandemic. The geographic location, however, is totally apt to today's episode. Since my guest has worked in Portugal, Angola, Britain and elsewhere, she is no other than the documentary filmmaker and journalist Ana Naomi Souza, whose work has been featured in Al Jazeera, The Guardian and in collaboration with Turner Prize nominee Forensic Architecture. Anna, thank you so much for coming on Red Hacks. This is really exciting. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. As you might know, Red Hacks always starts off with a brief conversation about the guests foray into journalism. And I know, because it was one of the first topics we, in fact, the the theme through which we met, that you worked in Angola, and that you, I don't know if that was the very beginning in journalism, but that you sort of certainly uh, flexed your journalistic muscles whilst there. So I was wondering whether you could talk to me about how you got into journalism, uh, your travels through Angola and, and, and through Lusophonia, which I don't know exactly how to say this in English, to be fair. I'm sure you'll, you'll know how to, to say it much better than me. So yeah, tell us, tell us about it. So I am a quarter Portuguese. My father is half Portuguese. He was born in Portugal. And I wasn't raised speaking Portuguese. So I, I studied Portuguese at university. And Portuguese at university really implied Lusophone studies. So I studied a lot of history and literature in particular of what's often called Lusophone Africa, so former Portuguese colonies. And I became very interested, especially in the literature, I suppose, but also in the history, the sort of anti-colonial history of the Portuguese, former Portuguese colonies. And when I graduated from university anyway, in in 2006, I I really didn't know what to do. And I took a job first that took me to Cape Verde, to Cabo Verde. And then whilst I was there, I got a job in Angola and I moved to Luanda. And I was there for two years. I was working as a translator at that time. So I was working for a kind of macroeconomic project, working for the government, for the Angolan government as a translator. And whilst I was there, I was traveling a lot and I was meeting loads of really, really interesting people doing really interesting things. And it was a very sort of intense and very enriching experience for me. And I met a journalist who really just made me realize that that was what I wanted to do. I did a trip around Angola with the the Angolan anthropologist, Antonio Tomás, and a Brazilian photographer, André Vieira. And they were, <laughs> Antonio was writing and André was photographing and I was just tagging along. And I suppose it was that kind of tagging along that really made me think this is something that I really want to do. And so I 
applied for uh, an MA in journalism back in London and I came back in at the end of 2008 and did my MA at Goldsmiths. Yeah, so that was that was the beginning, I guess. There is a leitmotif through your work, I would say, in which the East-West, or rather the developed and so-called developing world, and this bipolarity constant shows up in its social disparity, in the oppression that then occurs in this relationship, and so on and so forth. So do you feel like that return to London after being two years in Angola, after having had that experience of traveling with an anthropologist and a photographer, was part of that awakening? Or do you feel that that was already happening to you? Was it part of your upbringing anyway? Yeah, it's a really good question. It definitely is also part of my background, my heritage. And it is definitely something that if I really think about it, probably has always been there. So moving between different places is something that has always been part of my life and also part of my identity. Going from Angola to London was a bit hard in in different ways. Also, I mean, I was pretty young, but I I never conceived of of the return to London as anything other than temporary. It was come back, get a master's, and then probably go off again and be a correspondent, which was at the time what I saw myself doing and becoming. Yeah, I was fascinated by encountering the difference between the way things really are and the way things are often represented, especially with regards to Angola, which has, you know, it's got a specific place in the imagination of, you know, what you refer to as the West because of the Civil War. And of course, those representations are really limited and tend to be very limited and cliched. There was so much more to it. So I came back and I did an MA. And about a year after doing that MA, I did a job. I got an internship, actually, at Al Jazeera English. And I had thought that I would go into kind of print and maybe into correspondence. But actually, at Al Jazeera, I, I went into programs. So I went straight into work on a geopolitical discussion show called Empire where I started as a researcher. And from there, I kind of got pulled, um, you know, from program to program. And eventually I ended up on the on their documentary Strand Witness. And that's where I started making my own films. I really like, and it's, this was something I'm sure we have discussed before, certainly because one of our mutual acquaintances, in fact, I think the person who introduced us was the former BBC journalist, Laura Pawson. And I know this is something who who was a correspondent in Angola for many years. And she's someone I, I have had this discussion with. One of the discussions I've had very often with, with Laura, and maybe, maybe I've had with you before as well, is this gatekeeping and the difficulties of getting into particularly broadcasting, but journalism at large. So how how was it once you finished this degree at, at Goldsmiths? How did you then encounter, quote unquote, real life journalism, i.e. journalism outside of the space of academia? Was it actually still really easy? Did you even get a chance to become a broadcaster or sorry, a correspondent? Or did you immediately see how, how there was a, a dissonance there? Whilst I was doing my MA, I did the sort of usual thing of reaching out to people, you know, which is basically what they told us to do whilst we were studying was, you know, invite a journalist to coffee. <laughs> so I I had one like pretty significant coffee <laughs> with a very well known, a really great journalist, a woman who had been a foreign correspondent for many years and written several books. And I thought she would be the perfect person 
for me to talk to. And it was just such a reality check because she just gave me this sort of like cold truth of how she saw it. And it definitely made me pause. I mean, I think at the time I was thinking that Lusophone, somewhere Lusophone, somewhere Portuguese speaking might be a place that I could go to. And I was thinking specifically at the time of Brazil and I was thinking about Angola, but actually, and this is what Lara Porson, who you mentioned, has has often made a, a case for is that it's, you know, you basically, it's extremely expensive. Angola is, a, is an extremely expensive country and it's really hard to live as a, as a correspondent because it's very hard to find a media institution these days who'll pay for you to be a permanent correspondent. So, you know, essentially you're stringing or freelance and that's really difficult in a country like that. One of the things I've been meaning to talk about for a long time on Red Hacks and and I think this is, must be part of the discussion we have next, has been so difficult to find people to talk to or with about it, is that a lot of people who work, particularly in public, British public broadcasting, feel that if they, I'm not even necessarily saying speak out, because that makes it sound as if they only have bad things to say, which is not the case. But if they make their voices and their criticisms, uh, no matter how small they might be heard, this might put them in danger of losing their job, effectively. And if you could, I guess what I'm trying to get you to do is paint a picture to our listeners who very often will look uh, or will watch the news on the BBC and wonder why it is that even though we talk so often on the left and not only on the left at this point about the lack of diversity or about the narrow scope of topics, these are still permanently issues that appear. So I, I was hoping if you could illustrate a little bit firsthand some of the issues you've encountered and why you think that's the case. You know, I mean, in a way, I suppose I know very few people in journalism who got their jobs by applying the way you would normally apply for a job, by submitting a CV to somebody you don't know, going for an interview and being awarded a job. I don't know any journalists, I wish I did, but I don't, I don't think, who got their jobs like that, or very few. I mean, it simply isn't that transparent. And also this kind of like particular culture of like, you go, you know, as I was saying, you go for coffee with somebody and, and or somebody suggests you or somebody puts you in touch with somebody and they say, oh, okay, they go for coffee and then they say, oh, okay, I've got a shift going or, you know, this is how it goes. And I mean, this is essentially corrupt. <laughs> it's, it's not transparent and it doesn't give everybody a fair chance and it it doesn't submit everybody to the same kind of standards and criteria of recruitment so i think it's a massive problem and i don't think that until you address that you can address any of the other problems that we so that for me are a consequence of, of that really which is that why is everybody you know largely the same and with the same opinions because they all come from the same backgrounds. I mean, it's not terribly mysterious to me. I was wondering if you felt that that also informed your journalism, interestingly enough. I try to think critically about where I'm pitching stories, who I'm writing to, who I'm writing for, rather, and who the audience of those stories are. And, you know, I kind of weigh that up, I guess, in my, when I'm pitching, when I'm thinking about where to pitch to. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. And if anything, it, it leads very neatly, as most of this conversation has actually, into 
a topic that feels, well, very contemporary right now, which is a topic that you have covered before he was cool, which is the question of police violence, and in particular, the case of the oppression of Bain people, of black minorities, of migrant minorities, or, or migrants in general, in Portugal in particular. And I was wondering if this was, I, and I know that chronologically I'm jumping here between other jobs that you've done, but since you've already mentioned that when you pitch a story, you already have this in mind of who is, who is reading and, and what does the story tell. Yeah, I was wondering if, if that was how it came about, whether there were, there were other influences on, on top of all that. A Portuguese journalist asked me once when it was that I became interested in racism. And I thought it was a really curious question because I'm not white. And, you know, I grew up in, in England non, non-white. And so, you know, <laughs> I guess I became interested in it when, when I was a child. I guess the answer to that question is kind of related, which is that, you know, if you, if you grow up with this sense of being racialized and of being a minority, then these stories don't feel like other people's stories. They also feel like somehow related to your own story. And I think that in relation to police brutality in Portugal, you know, some of the people that I've written about are people I know very well. And so it's something that doesn't feel far removed. Um, and it's also something that just I feel very strongly about the injustice. I think that there's something else which is maybe what you were asking about audience specifically, and it made me think of something you mentioned earlier, which was you were saying east-west and I think north-south, which is kind of the way that we used to articulate it often within Al Jazeera. And I think that the experience for me of working within Al Jazeera is this kind of, as you were saying, not quite public, but certainly state broadcaster, state-funded broadcaster, is that the, that is really what Al Jazeera sought to do, and I think did very well in its early years, was speak from the South, and speak from the South all across the South, across the global South. And when I was writing about police brutality in Portugal, I was writing for Al Jazeera. I did also later write for The Guardian, but in, initially I was writing more for Al Jazeera, and I was conceiving of it more in that way. I mean, the reason why I ask you whether it came from your journalistic lens or this preoccupation to then go into that topic is that I also have colleagues who very rightly don't want to be pigeonholed and because they're people of color and therefore they don't, they, they hate quite understandably the fact that every time they're commissioned, in particular when they're freelance, they're then asked to write about questions of race oppression. And I saw a lot of my colleagues and comrades putting on social media that look, you know, you, words to the effect of you haven't commissioned me for ever. And now you suddenly want me because of as a token, effectively. And so I am very aware of the fact that, and in particular, knowing your work, given that you've done so much beyond that, I was wondering if it was covering police violence and covering systemic racism was something that just ended up being interwoven with your other work or whether it was also like a sort of almost semi-conscious decision. So working with Al Jazeera, of course, is very different because my experience has just been I'm very rarely, especially in, t- in terms of print, I'm very rarely pitching to white editors, for example. So the editors that I most often work with there are not white. They come from a variety of different backgrounds and they kind of understand intrinsically that different places all over the world are actually of interest, even if they don't speak English. 
So I think that there is a starting point there, especially when it comes to Al Jazeera, that it's very refreshing and it has been a very important space in that sense. And so you go from being in Angola, you then go and train as a journalist, work in broadcasting for a good time. And this was around the time we met, actually. You also get involved with forensic architecture, which for those people who don't know, uh, this is a Turner Prize nominee organization. I don't know if they can be called an architecture firm, although that would be what I would call them. But their work goes way beyond simply architecture, I would say. And in particular, they, and I'm sure you can explain this much better than I can, I'm going to butcher it, but they look at how spaces and politics are innately connected. How did you get here? And and obviously the second question will be, how did it inform your journalism or was it completely unrelated or did it change you as a journalist as well? But how did you get there in the first place? Yeah, so forensic architecture, I don't know. I don't think it does call itself a firm now. I think it's a project or organisation, maybe. It came out of a university um, research project at the Centre for Research Architecture at Goldsmiths. So it was set up by A.L. Weisman, who's an architect, who I had made a film with back in 2013 called The Architecture of Violence, which was a film about the architecture of the Israeli occupation. We filmed it in Palestine, and it was based on his book, Hollow Land. It was, even in the film, we had just looked at the very beginning of forensic architecture. He was just beginning that that sort of project and as a kind of way of using architecture to investigate state crimes and violations. And I was super interested in the project. I loved the idea that architecture could be so diverted to this point. And the project, I kept in close touch with AL over the following years. And when I left Al Jazeera in 2014, the following year, when I came back, I went to Beirut for a few months. I came back in 2015, and that was when I I sort of started working with forensic architecture then. Um, And I initially worked on a project about Gaza which was an investigation project for Amnesty about the bombings in Gaza in 2014. And then I began working on, and I was kind of doing like, you know, Forensic Architecture is actually a project that uses a lot of media and different approaches to media, which were really interesting. But I was doing a lot of kind of like, you know, comms and press releasey kind of stuff to begin with. And then we had this this project came along. It was a collaboration with Amnesty International, who were trying to develop advocacy tools around the issue of forced disappearance and imprisonment in state military prisons in Syria. And we kind of came up with a project that would be um, essentially a documentary, you know, a sort of a documentary project that included film. And so I was at that point like a sort of resident filmmaker. And we went to Turkey and we interviewed a number of people who were survivors of um, this experience of incarceration by the state. And the project kind of took a sort of process of interviews based on a sort of spatial reconstruction of the prison and its cells and places where people have been held as a way of recollecting and talking about the experiences of torture and imprisonment. So it was a very 
it was a very difficult project. Yeah, uh, as well as technically, it was all kinds of other nightmares. <laughs> yeah, so it was a really challenging project. It took us the better part of a year in 2016. Um, and that was, yeah, Sid Naya is the name of the project. I found your collaboration and even just your curiosity in the interdisciplinary aspect of these projects you've done and I'm sure you've carried many of the lessons of those projects onto your current projects at least vital in terms of learning processes when journalism is in my view at a critical point in which it has to either reinvent itself or the way in which it operates rather it doesn't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel but it has to change is a usual modus operandi or it will perish to a great degree and it will give room to an automation that for me is not journalism. And so when I hear you attempting, even if at times failing in the process, to create these connections and develop a journalism that isn't just about telling a story, but rather through the telling of the story, creating change. And at the same time, not even doing that in what is what most people imagine journalism to be, which is some sort of like 30s vision, you know, stereotype of the of the journalist who goes out on the street and tells you the real story of what's going on. I find it really, really inspiring, really. And and I was hoping in in that process, you also could share your learnings and perhaps the better way to ask you that is what do you f how do you feel it has influenced the projects you're working on right now and by that I'm also asking what you're working on right now so I often hesitate even to call myself a journalist I suppose when people ask me what I do I sometimes I call myself a documentary filmmaker because as you say I mean the sort of idea that people have of what journalism is is very fixed to something that isn't really what I do and I definitely have like lots of journalists not all. I really question this idea of impartiality or objectivity or, you know, what on earth this brings us in when we're talking about questions that are, you know, of justice, for example, or, you know, sort of clearly amoral <laughs> questions. I mean, that, that, you, that you shouldn't, for example, criticise the Israeli occupation, like this is somehow a question of objectivity. And so I just don't, I often just find that kind of, the idea of that kind of journalism just no longer interests me, frankly, and I don't want to do it. But sometimes sort of trying to fit into that, trying to fit into what journalism is also is, it can be really difficult. I was just looking back today at a piece that I tried to write for Al Jazeera about the Central African Museum in Brussels which has been in discussion again this week because of the, the question of statues and decolonizing. And the Central African Museum in Brussels is written about by Adam Hochschild in King Leopold's Ghost. It was a museum created by Leopold as a kind of propaganda machine for the, his colonial exploits. And it was like a really weird and macabre sort of curiosity cabinet for many, many years. And then in around 2010, it closed for what they called modernization. And it just reopened again last year, or perhaps the year before. And I visited the museum several times before it closed and then whilst it was being modernised. And I was supposed to write about it and I had all these kind of like facts about it, 
and all these things they'd done, but I just couldn't find a way of writing about this museum within the constraints of what journalism is in a way that was at all interesting or that was really relevant. <laughs> and and I suppose that's, you know, I'm really drawn to other ways of writing about things. And actually, Lara Pawson, who you mentioned before, is, is, is the kind of person who is the kind of writer who strays between different forms to try and find a way that's adequate to and appropriate to the things she's writing about. And I think I'm also trying to do that and also with film, not just in writing, to find more adequate ways because sometimes, yeah, this this language, these formats, these formula, they just are not enough to say what there is to say. And what are the frustrations you find on the way? Because because I find that I mean, now I'm referring to my own, I'm projecting now, sorry, Anna. Um, but uh, I, I found very often that there is this permanent line we need to toe between, well, actually in part also just between financial sustainability for ourselves, because the laws of the market make it often very difficult for us to survive on, if you want to call it journalism or not, but I still, to my case, still call it a journalism that is of interest, of relevance to me as much as to the hopeful reader or listener or so on. So I was wondering whether for you, you found other frustrations beside the more pedestrian of kind of staying financially afloat. In other words, have you found an actual direct sort of opposition to what you were trying to do? Well, you know, like I would say maybe 60% of the pictures that I've made are, are not taken. So yes. <laughs> you know, make of that what you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's really hard to convince people that to write about things in, in a different way or things about things that they think they're not interested in. Or things that they think will not bring them the advertisement they want. This is an interesting moment in which to have this conversation because of course suddenly you know for years and years having been pitching stories about decolonizing statues and museums and getting them knocked back you know now you can't turn your head for stories about statues yeah exactly I mean it's sort of and now of course that, that there are lots of things that have that have suddenly changed or there are lots of things that are suddenly being talked about and you know perhaps that will change how hard it is to pitch as a person of colour about stories that are predominantly about places that aren't always considered to be of interest, you know. I don't know. Maybe. I don't think that statues is the main, should be the main focus. You know, it's, we're talking about massive structural systemic inequality and unfortunately the statues is also providing something of a distraction and a point of focus for right activists. So, you know, I, I, what I really loved was just seeing that after... It's like the, th the the sort of public debate about statues is not something that I'm hugely interested in. What I loved was the act of rebellion and the act of kind of people power of like, you know, fuck this. We've been talking about this statue and this concert hall for like a decade. It, nah. And the, the taking into into their own hands of that. That act of rebellion that you're talking about was an act of joy as well, and or had very much an element of joy and of almost like people sovereignty aspect to it, right? Like this, we're taking the matter in our own, into our own hands because for eons it felt we've been trying to go through the usual uh, or official processes or uh, channels and nothing has happened about something that is quite offensive 
and counterproductive when we're trying to to decolonize curriculums and histories and discourses. And I, I think like the fact that this joy was when we're talking about in the media and particularly in the mainstream media, when uh, I mean, I'm obviously mainly thinking of uh, the statue that went down in Bristol that was when it was thrown in the canal of Coulson, the glee, you know, that that came from this people power and the fact that once it was broadcasted, all of that seemed to be either immediately portrayed as kind of vandalism and, and rioting or otherwise ignored, you know, like joy and unity are such a powerful binding element of humans, really, particularly when, when connected to such a symbolic act. And I, I thought that it was, I mean, I find myself over and over again mentioning the, the, the phrase, you know, shocked but not surprised kind of thing. I was kind of shocked that... Nobody was able to say it out loud how, I mean, with, with a few exceptions, about how this was actually a really liberating and, and, and extraordinarily happy occasion. Yeah, totally. As if the standing of a statue had higher importance than the happiness of people, <laughs> effectively. I found that quite telling. And, and obviously, this is a, a more simplistic example, because I'm sure there have been, since then, a series of other minor instances or, or less publicized instances in which this uh, spin on what is actually happening on the ground was put on uh, by mainstream journalists or, or by, I mean, I, I don't like the definition of mainstream journalists simply because I know that there's a lot of people working in mainstream channels that probably are just as happy or were just as happy when they saw that statue fall in the canal. But within that, you know, within the industry, I guess, is what I'm trying to suggest. Things end up being, going through a sort of reshaping and these vital aspects of what is happening on the ground seem to be lost. Once again, the limits of journalism. Well, precisely. <laughs> you know, not, no editor wants to talk about the rapture and joy of that moment. They just want to know how many people were there and what time was it? And, you know, what did so-and-so say for it? What did so-and-so say against it? And it's boring. I really was curious or I'm curious about anything you might be working at the moment that you might tell us about before I ask you the the usual last question of the show which is what you're reading right now but maybe the two can come together maybe you're reading about something yeah I am reading like 20 books at the same time because that's what my lockdown has done to me really sounds glorious it's pretty good I'm enjoying it I'm reading Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman, which is just an incredible and really beautiful book that also really is seeking a new way of, of writing history. And it's about the lives of sort of unconventional, maybe you'd say, black women in the years after the abolition of slavery in the US. It's just incredible. So I'm reading that. I'm reading some poetry because that is something that, especially in sort of like stressful times, like the last couple of months have been, I find really helpful. <laughs> so I've been reading Anti-Worlds by Andrei Woznesensky, translated by a variety of different poets, including W.H. Auden and Stanley Kunitz. I'm reading some Chekhov because... You know, Chekhov, you can't go wrong with. <laughs> Absolutely. Are we talking uh, 
Chekhov plays or? No, I'm reading a collection of short stories, which are just exquisite. They're really beautiful. And then I'm reading a bunch of biographies of British boxers. And that is related to a project that I'm working on at the moment. So for the last three years, I've been working on a story about a boxer in the 90s. And so I sort of started going to lots of boxing, to lots of fights and hanging out at the York Hall in Bethnal Green and, yeah, and sort of watching lots of fights on on video with my editor. And, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm smiling as you're telling me this because I, for the listener, Anna is tiny and I can only imagine you in these super, you know, masculine environments. Um, I mean, it's 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 it must be quite a sight. But but it is also a sport with a, a, a extraordinary history. So I'm 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 quite looking forward to see what what you've been doing once it's finished. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's a fair way. It's a long way off yet. A long way off. But yeah, it's a sort of culmination of lots of different interests I have and lots of things that I have been working on, including race and sort of colonialism and um yeah that's so that's what I'm working on really and thank you so much for coming on Red Hacks this was really I mean not only a really fun chat but I think really really pertinent so I thank you for that thank you so much I am Joanna Romero and this was Red Hacks a show about being a left-wing journalist in a neoliberal world hosted by Politics Theory Other if you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe to Politics Theory Other on iTunes and leave a review. And if you want to support Politics Theory Other, please consider becoming one of our patrons for as little as $3 a month, which is just about £2, at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Ciao!